Hello. No my Heidi my. Uh, welcome everyone. Oh, that's a bit. That's a bit buzzy. Um, welcome everyone to Word Christchurch Shifting Points of View season. Uh, my name is Rachel King and I'm the Program Director of Word Christchurch. And for those of you who've been here all afternoon, I promise this is the last you'll see of me today, um, unless you want to come to Bad Diaries Salon and hear me reading from my teenage diary. <laughs> um, it's my great pleasure today to welcome um, Vincent O'Malley to Christchurch to talk about his book, The New Zealand Wars. Um, I'd just like to quickly thank our major funders, Creative New Zealand, the Router Foundation and the Christchurch City Council, and our partners, Te Runanga or Naitahu, Heartland Bank and the New Zealand Listener. And we pay our respects to the mana whenua of Otutahi Nai Tuahuriri. We'd also like to thank our patrons, supporters and volunteers and you, the audience, for coming. Um, please could you turn your phones to silent and in the event of an emergency, uh, remain calm and follow the instructions of the venue staff. Uh, today's event differs slightly from that advertised. Um, Vincent was to be in conversation with Naitahu historian Mike Stevens. Um, unfortunately, due to a bereavement, Mike's unable to be with us today. Um, so Vincent's agreed to give us a lecture instead, and there will be time for audience questions at the end. Um, after the session, Vincent's books can be purchased from the UBS standout in the foyer, and Vincent will be available to sign them as well. Vincent O'Malley is a founding partner of History Works, a group of historians specialising in Treaty of Waitangi research. He's the author of a number of books on New Zealand history, including the landmark book on the Waikato War, The Great War for New Zealand, Waikato, 1800 to 2000. His new book, The New Zealand Wars, Ngā Pakanga o Aotearoa, examines the causes, events and consequences of the New Zealand Wars. Vincent's a great champion for the idea that we need to embrace our past in order to move forward, and that teaching New Zealand history in schools is essential. His recent article in the spin-off gave readers historical context around the Ihu Matau situation, once again showing how knowing history can shed light on extremely complex contemporary issues. We're thrilled to have him speak today. Would you please welcome Vincent O'Malley. What a good start. <laughs> uh, tēnei tamihi kia koutou, uh, no mai hare mai ki tēnei kururo, uh, tūtahi mihi ki te tangata whenua o tōtahi, uh, nai tua huriri, nai, uh, me nai tahu. Uh, ko Vincent O'Malley toko ingoa, uh, hi tumu kororo a hau. Um, so in this talk I want to um, start with talking a little bit about um, myself and how I became a historian, because it speaks to some of the themes of, of um, what I, I want to discuss today. And then I'll, uh, I'll talk about the new book, um, the history in it, um, what's new, and why I think it's important that we need to do more as a nation to properly acknowledge this history. Um, and we had a session before um, about owning our history, and that, that's really something that I'm really passionate about, that we deep, as a nation, we need to take ownership of our history we need to take responsibility for it. Um, and also I'm hoping to leave plenty of time for, for questions um, and discussion at the end as well. So just a bit about me. Um, I'm, I'm from Christchurch myself, from a big working class Irish Catholic family here. Um, I was the ninth of nine kids. Um, my father worked at Addington Railway Workshops building trains when that was the biggest employer in the city. Um, and my mother was a cleaner and that, that was my first job as well. Actually, she was my boss. Uh, which was awkward. Um, and so I started cleaning at the age of 15 at the University of Canterbury, and actually I was cleaning in the history department, and that was a really, um, I think it's quite an interesting way to find the good lecturers, the people who treat their cleaners with decency and kindness. And so that, that, was, that was a good introduction to this, because my, my old joke used to be that I started, you know, at the history department at the age of 15, but it's just that I wasn't there as a student, I was a cleaner. Anyway, at high school I had a really good history teacher. He was great, but... Um, he was of the view that nothing interesting ever happened in New Zealand, and he refused to teach us any New Zealand history. And I remember asking him about this one day. I said, sir, why aren't we learning any New Zealand history? And he said, forget it, boy. Boring. Move on. Nothing happened here. So we did the English Civil War. We did the Russian Revolution. Tudor and Stuart history, of course. So many of us learned about the Tudors and Stuarts. And I loved all that because history was my passion. That was the thing that, that I loved. Um, and so... 
when I went back to university three or four years later, this time as an actual student, I enrolled in a whole bunch of European history courses because that was all that I knew. Um, and it was only after a few weeks um, I decided to drop out of something else. I think it was economics. And I was looking for a filler course and I looked in the Canto magazine and um, it, it rated New Zealand History 101 as a good filler course. And I thought, well, it will be boring. Nothing happened here after all. My, my old history teacher told me that. But I did it and I was absolutely blown away. And I thought to myself, why didn't I learn about this stuff at school? That this is, it, this is our story, our history. And so many of us, you know, for me it was just a fluke that I, I happened to, to encounter it finally at university. And so the idea that, that New Zealand history is dull, that we don't have a history worth, worth, worth speaking to and thinking of, couldn't be further from the truth. So that was me, you know, once I had that first exposure to it, I was away. But I didn't, um, you know, I didn't go to university with the idea that I, I would become a historian. I, probably as a child I didn't really know that such a thing was possible. Um, and I was fortunate enough to go to university at a time in the late 1980s when you could still only just go to university and study something that you had a passion for without some kind of vocational plan. So I was just studying for the love of it without, without a sort of um, idea that there was a, a, a particular job at the end of this. And it was only some time later um, I got offered a, a three-month job in Wellington researching treaty claims. Um, and that was um, January 1993, so I've been there 26 years now doing that. That three-month contract sort of <laughs> rolled over and over, and I'm still there doing that. And um, so I'm working for Iwi, for the Waitangi Tribunal, and also for you know, museums and heritage organisations and so on. And that's been fantastic. Um, but one of the things about treaty claims process is really it's just iwi speaking to the Crown and other New Zealanders aren't part of the conversation. And often when there's a settlement, that, you know, you get this pushback because people don't know about the history behind those claims because we didn't learn about it at school. And so much ignorance around our history and particularly around the history of 19th century New Zealand. Um, and, and so many of us who didn't have any exposure to this history at all when we were at school. And I'd suggest that the, 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 the claims process over the last few decades is an area of incredibly rich historical research. That's where the most interesting research is happening in New Zealand at the moment. Um, you know, re research reports that are uh, prepared are hundreds of pages long, but then everything that you, every primary source that you use in that, you have to provide a copy of to the Waitangi Tribunal as well. So we, we compile what, what are called document banks. They can be 20,000 pages long. I can barely move in my office for all the boxes of stuff that I've got in there. And so that's, that's how I came to write um, this new book, The New Zealand Wars. So 2016, um, I wrote The Great War for New Zealand, and that was um, based on research that I did for the Waitangi Tribunal. Uh, 2006, I think it was, I was commissioned to write a couple of reports for the Waitangi Tribunal's King Country, or Rohe Potai Inquiry. And that's, that's just south of the, of, um, of the Waikato district of, of the Raupatu. And so the reports that I was asked to write were on the, um, the causes and uh, course and consequences of the Waikato War. And at the time that I did that, a lot of people sort of thought, oh, well, this will be straightforward because hasn't the, sto the story already been told before? Didn't Jamie Ballach do it? Didn't James Cowan do it before that? But as I got into that research, there were so many new things that I learnt. And I thought, if this is new to me, then it, probably a large number of other people know nothing about this as well. So, um, you know, people go on about the size of the book, and admittedly it is 700 pages long and weighs two and a half kilos as well. So it is a real doorstopper. But the, the reports that was, were based on, they were 1,500 pages long, and, and again, tens of thousands of pages of documents. Um, and following that... Um, the book in 2016, I got a lot of invitations to, um, to go and talk to various groups. And one of, one of the things I've been doing over the last few years is talking to school groups. And that's been really incredible. Um, and one of the things about that is, is that young people really get why this history matters to them and their communities. And, and they understand it, they really embrace it. They also ask me some really difficult questions as well. They're very, very perceptive about, about this history. Um, and 
at the time I wrote that book, I'd sort of been writing books continuously for 10 years, and I thought, well, I need a bit of a break. And so I took a bit of a break, um, time to read some other books, because when I'm writing myself, I, I'm so obsessed with what I'm creating that I, I kind of, you know, all of that stuff I can't really do. I can't read other books unless they're for the purposes of research. So, you know, I, I did talks and I read and so on. And then I think it was last year, my publisher said, so what's next? So one of the things that um, I had in mind is, of course, I've been, I've been talking for the last few years about why it's a no-brainer that New Zealand history should be taught in all schools. Um, and one of the arguments that I sometimes heard against this was that the resources don't exist for that. Um, and so I looked at the, uh, what was available on the New Zealand wars, and in terms of resources for schools, a lot of the books were aimed at quite young students, like nine or ten years old, and I thought there's a kind of a, a gap there for um, senior secondary students. So um, what I was trying to do is produce something that's um, short but scholarly and accessible. So, you know, the, the last book, The Great War for New Zealand, it was, quite a it was quite an investment for people to read that. You had to be really committed to the subject. The new one is, is something that you could read in a day if you wanted to, and it's, it's a much more um, entry-level discussion of the topic. Um, you know, with, with the idea in mind that it could be used, you know, years 11 to 13, secondary school students, but also for adults who want an introduction to the topic, given so many of us didn't learn anything about it during our time at school. So that's how I got talked into to writing the book. Um, and one of the things about history, you know, so, sometimes, as I said, you know, people think, hasn't this already been done before? What, what's new to say? And so on. But the thing about history is each generation writes its own because we bring our own priorities to bear, our, our own values, and so on. Um, and one of the examples, and, and Marilyn sort of referred to this in the last session, um, is that 50 years ago, somebody writing about New Zealand wars probably wouldn't really have looked at the role of women in the wars. And I think today that's something that's really important to consider. Another thing as well, uh, you know, 50 years ago, typically a lot of Pākehā historians writing about this wouldn't really have tried to examine Māori actions in terms of tikanga, to, to understand Māori in terms of their own value system rather than imposing a Pākehā one. And, you know, future generations will bring their own kind of priorities and their own values to be on that as well. So this is, you know, an evolving conversation, one that's ongoing. And one of the things, another example of how, you know, th these perceptions shift over time as well is, even in terms of what we call these wars, um, you know, 50 years ago, they were mostly referred to as the Māori Wars. And... Um, some older people who, who did learn something about this at school might have, you know, they would have been taught about the Māori Wars. And the problem with that label is it kind of rendered everybody else who was involved in these conflicts invisible. Where are the other combatants? And this was part of the, um, the British Convention where they named, they named wars after their enemies. So you had the Zulu War, uh, the Boer War, the Indian Mutiny and so on. Um, so in the 1960s, 1970s, as historians started to explore some of the causes of the wars, um, the land wars was, was offered as an alternative. Um, and one of the problems with that is it's, it's, land was a, a really important factor in the wars, and I'll, I'll talk a, a little bit more about that later, but it wasn't the only factor in the wars. So that's kind of a monocausal mono explanation for the wars. So I think... Um, you know, today most historians refer to them as the New Zealand Wars, which is returning to a label that James Cowan used in the 1920s when he wrote about these conflicts. And he was trying, he was trying to convince New Zealanders that we did have a, have a history worth, worth caring about. Um, then that label went out of fashion for a while, and then uh, 1986, James Bellich, in his wonderful book on the New Zealand Wars, again returned to that label. And I think it's, a, I think it's an appropriate one because it speaks to the fact that these were wars for the future of New Zealand as a whole and that they were nation-defining conflicts. So the New Zealand wars were a series of conflicts uh, fought between the Crown and various groups of Māori between 1845 and 1872, um, and they left about 6,000 people um, killed or wounded, over two-thirds of them Māori. 
And they also brought more than 18,000 British troops to New Zealand. And we, we refer to the British Army, but the really staggering thing um, is two-thirds of the rank-and-file soldiers who served in the New Zealand wars were actually Irish. Stunning. Uh, uh, we almost need to refer to it as the Irish Army rather than the British Army. And one of the things that fascinated me as somebody of Irish Catholic extraction myself is how do they feel fighting this war of conquest and dispossession on behalf of the very same British crown that had dispossessed them and conquered their country? Because Ireland was the original blueprint for, for British colonisation. And so that was something that I was really keen to explore. Um, and it, not easy to, to, to kind of get definitive answers on that because a lot of those soldiers were illiterate. So, you know, they weren't leaving behind letters and diaries recounting their everyday thoughts. But there was enough anecdotal evidence to suggest that they did become increasingly disillusioned with what they were being asked to do. Um, and not just the rank and file Irish soldiers, but also some of their officers. Famously, um, General Cameron, the leader of the British Armed Forces in New Zealand, he, he became... Um, extremely disillusioned with the war and, and um, basically um, eventually sort of quit in disgust and left the country. And he saw it as a war, a war of dispossession for the benefit of New Zealand settlers. And a lot of those troops asked themselves, why should we be fighting this? Why, why aren't the settlers in New Zealand fighting their own war um, to dispossess Māori of their lands um, and, and to undermine their authority over their communities? And so after 1866, um, British forces had progressively withdrawn from New Zealand. The, the last regiment, the 18th Royal, Royal Irish Regiment, leaves in 1870. Um, but a huge number of the troops remained behind in New Zealand, um, including a disproportionately large number of the Irish troops, because I guess that's not surprising, because a lot of them didn't have much to return to in their home country. And... Um, you know, this is post-Irish um, famine. Um, and the British Army um, in the 1860s is not a great place to be. It was pretty brutal and barbaric. Um, I, I read accounts of grown men, you know, with tears running down their face watching public floggings. Um, really brutal. The pay was awful. Uh, alcoholism was rife and so on. Um, but at least he got fed. You know, it, it, was, it was something. So the, the army leaves, but a lot of the soldiers remain behind. And, and the really interesting thing as well about this is a large number of them um, end up marrying Māori women from the very same tribes that they've been fighting against. It's incredible, incredible stories. A lot of Māori can trace their whakapapa back both to Māori who, who, to Māori who fought on both sides of the wars. And many other New Zealanders today would also, uh, could also trace um, their ancestry to some of these soldiers as well. There are also Māori who fought on the British or Crown side um, against other iwi. Um, and that was often because they had to make really difficult decisions about what was in the best interests of their communities. Um, at a time when the government said, you're basically for us or against us. Now, if you were an iwi in the path of an invading British army, you didn't really have a choice to say, well, sit this one out, thank you very much. You had to make very quick judgments about how your people were going to survive. And so, you know, these communities are making life or death decisions around these things. And often those Māori are making them according to what they assess will be in the best interests of their iwi. Um, and there are a lot of factors that go into that. So they're not, they're not necessarily pursuing the same objectives as the Crown. They have, they're fighting their own wars for their own reasons. So you've got Māori fighting on both sides. You've got the British Army. You've also got... Um, colonial soldiers as well. Um, some conscripted militia uh, in places like Auckland and Wellington. Uh, I think all men between the ages of um, 18 and 55 um, were subject to conscription, um, except lunatics, priests or, or politicians. They were exempt. <laughs> um, and then you had volunteers as well. So the war start in Northland in 1845. Uh, Honeheke and Kawati take up arms against the Crown at a high wire or a picker and elsewhere. And this is, of course, after Honeheke had, had famously chopped down the British flagstaff at Kotoradika or Russell four times. Um, and Ohaiwai in July 1865 
the Crown, Crown forces come up against the, what James Belich has referred to as the modern Māori pa for the first time, and they get absolutely smashed. And one of the lessons, um, one of the things about these wars is the British officers refuse to learn the lessons. One of the things they think is if, if we bombard a pa all day um, and then we hear nothing from inside, we can just invade it and, and, and overtake it because everybody inside will be dead. And time and again, that's wrong, and a highway is the start of that. And the British suffer very heavy casualties. 20 years later, in the Waikato War, they're repeating exactly the same tactics and, and with the same outcomes. Gate Pa, for example, where the British bombard the Pa all day, assuming everybody inside is dead, and suffer mass, massive casualties um, as a result. Anyway, in the 1840s, there are further, there are further conflicts um, at Wellington and Whanganui. Um, Again, you know, with land and sovereignty are, are kind of key factors in these. Then you get this really long period of peace. And so from the mid-1840s through to the early 1860s, um, Māori are devoting their energies to growing crops for sale, um, both here and overseas. And um, one of the things a lot of people don't know is that Māori were producing much of New Zealand's export income through the 1850s. New Zealand's economy is a Māori economy in the 1850s. Not just, not just export um, income, but also taxation revenue for the Crown. And, set, and also feeding settlers in towns like Auckland and Wellington and Nelson and elsewhere. And one of the Auckland newspapers in 1844 actually says the, the, the settlers here would have starved if it wasn't for Māori bringing produce to the township each week. So that's just how reliant that Pākehā were on Māori during this period, even, even for basic, basic essentials. Um, and that's a story that so many, so many people don't know anything about at all. So this long period of peace is shattered in March 1860, um, when Crown forces attack Taranaki Māori, who are protesting the sale of their lands at Waitara. And the Crown had purchased these lands from a, minor, a minority of the iwi, um, that purchased them from a rangatira called Te Tera. Against the opposition of Wuda McKingi to Rangitaheki, who was the senior chief of the community, and many of the other owners. And Wuda McKingi, in the 1840s, when there had been war in the Wellington region, he, he had He'd been on the Crown side. He, he was a loyalist. He didn't want to fight the Crown. So when the Crown starts claiming these lands that Māori own, they protest, they, they, you know, they say these are our lands, please, please don't do this. The Crown ignores all that. And so what William McKingy does, does um, is when the Crown send out surveyors onto the lands, um, Te Atiawa, the owners, they send out elderly elderly woman, Kuya, to pull out the survey pegs and protest. The government um, calls that an act of rebellion and it declares martial law because of women pulling out survey pegs on the ground on, the la on lands that they owned. And so you get war in, in March 1860, it breaks out, um, and it ends in March 1861 um, inconclusively, partly because Taranaki Māori receive assistance from um, Waikato and Ngāti Maniapoto iwi. And that assistance is really crucial because um, the Crown says that, that that was an act of rebellion on the part of, ta of Waikato Tainui. And actually in 1861, um, the government starts plotting to invade Waikato. And it's only because the governor, Governor Thomas Gore Brown, is withdrawn from the country and replaced by Sir George Grey. And Grey arrives in New Zealand in, in September 1861, and he quickly concludes that the Crown is in no position to invade Waikato anytime soon. Um, so what he does, one of the first things he does, is order the construction of the Great South Road. And that means that British troops can, can invade Waikato from overland. So they have a road that runs all the way to the Waikato River from Auckland. He also orders steamers, and he builds up the number of British troops in his own massively, so they, they quadruple in the space of 18 months. And so Waikato involvement in the Taranaki War in 1860-61 is, 
is, is one of the arguments that's used for an invasion of Waikato. The other argument that, is, that Gray uses to, to attempt to justify his invasion um, is that Waikato Māori are planning to attack the settlement of Auckland and massacre all of its residents. And Governor Gray had this reputation as a, as a progressive and humanitarian governor, and he was attempting to protect us even as he was planning to invade Waikato. So he, he kind of had to find justifications for doing this, because it's a grave step for the Crown to attack its, its own subjects. And this is what he was proposing. So he assembles what I, what I call his dodgy dossier to, to, to justify the unjustifiable, essentially. Waikato had been home since 1858 to the Māori king, um, at first Potata Te Whero Whero, and then succeeded by his son Tafia. And the Kingitanga um, was founded as something to bring Māori together, to unite Māori. Um, and it wasn't seen as something that was hostile towards Europeans or towards the Crown. Part of the reason that it was established is in 1852, New Zealand gets a new constitution passed by the British Parliament. So that sets up the forerunner of today's New Zealand Parliament. It meets for the first time in Auckland in 1854. Only problem with that, Māori can't vote for it or sit in that Parliament because the qualification to vote is based on European forms of land tenure. And this is at a time when most Māori hold their lands under customary title. So Māori don't have a piece of paper saying, you are the legal owner of this land. And for Rangatira, who'd been promised partnership in the treaty, they look at this and think, what has just happened? This, this parliament has been established that they're excluded from. So Māori think, you know, they plead with the Crown for admission to that, or failing that, setting up a parallel body where the chiefs would meet and also be consulted on the laws of the land. That doesn't happen either. So the Kingitanga, the Māori King movement, is established as a way for, for Māori across the country to come together for, for the common good um, and for the welfare of their communities. But the Crown sees it as um, something that's hostile towards European authority. And so in this way you get what um, <coughs> Wurimu Tamihana had described as the Great War for New Zealand. And that, that was where the title of my book came from. And it really summed up the key thesis, the key argument of that book, which was that the Waikato War of 1863-64 was the defining conflict in New Zealand history not World War I and World War II, happened right here. And this, this was a pivotal moment in New Zealand history. Wurimu Tamihana, um, I, I talked earlier in the Onion History session about just what a remarkable figure he was. He was a, a leader of the Ngatihaua um, people from Waikato Tainui. And Pākehā in the 19th century called him the kingmaker because he'd played an instrumental role um, in establishing the kingitanga. And, you know, he was a man ahead of his time, a, a man of peace who had this kind of vision of the kind of bicultural country that we could become. It didn't happen in his lifetime. It took more than a century, and we're, we're still grappling towards that. But he had that vision. And if we ask ourselves what the Waikato War was about, I think it, it, it does come down to two competing visions of what the nation was and what it could become. And this goes right back to the signing of the Treaty of Waitangi in 1840. On the one hand, Pākehā arrived in the country expecting to be in charge. They thought that they were going to be, to be the bosses of this country. And they arrive here and they discover basically Māori are in charge. Māori are dominating the economy, they're all powerful, um, dominate demographically, militarily, economically and so on. And, and they thought that Māori had ceded sovereignty to the Crown because that's what the English translation of the treaty says. But that's not what the Māori language version of that says at all. Um, that cedes to the Crown kawanatanga, or governance, which is a far lesser thing than sovereignty. And so these different conceptions of the nature of the relationship, on the one hand, Māori expectations of partnership, on the other hand, Crown and Pākehā expectations were in charge, or we should be in charge. They coexist for about 20 years. The signing of the treaty itself doesn't actually change a lot on the ground overnight. And that's why the Waikato War is, is really important, because it's really about which of these visions is going to prevail. Will we have partnership, or will the Crown impose its authority over Māori communities? Demographics is key here. 
1858, um, roughly where the, the arrow is, Pākehā outnumber Māori for the first time ever. So Māori are outnumbered in, in their own country. And we heard earlier, in 1840, um, Pākehā were, were tiny compared with the Māori population. And I suggest it's no coincidence that within two years of this, you get major conflict. Firstly at Taranaki in 1860, and then Waikato and elsewhere through into 1872. Because for those first 20 years, Pākehā had presented the situation, but they didn't feel powerful enough to change it. And now they do. They think this is our time. It's, it's time to take control. It's time to assert their assumed racial dominance. Because these Pākehā came here with these kind of set of ideas about they were supposed to be in charge because they were at the, the apex of their own imagined racial hierarchy and Māori are way down here. But that's, that's not the reality they find on the ground. Another key factor obviously is land as well. So um, pre-European New Zealand, obviously Māori own all of the country. By 1864 nearly all of the South Island has gone. Um, acquired by the Crown for a pittance, really. I mean, I talked earlier about the Kemp purchase right here. Nearly a third of the country purchased for £2,000 or $4,000, a few thousand acres of reserves. But there's resistance to further land alienation. And one of the things that the Crown could do if it imposed its authority over Māori communities is acquire even more lands. And so that's, that's one of the factors one of the important factors in these wars as well. And that works um, remarkably well. You can see just how, how little land uh, is left in Māori ownership today. So the Crown doesn't succeed in imposing its authority at Taranaki in 1860. It looks to Waikato to do so, because that's, that's the homeland to the, the Māori king. And the government thought that if it could destroy the king, then full control and authority would, would be imposed over Māori. So in the Waikato War um, at Rangiriri in November 1863, um, the people in the pa are taken prisoner under a white flag. Um, and that white flag was not necessarily a sign, indication of surrender, but often they were used to signal a temporary truce, you know, for example, so that both sides could bury their dead. But the British had attempted to take that pa by charging it a number of times and suffered significant casualties. So they take advantage of this, this flag of truce to to take the pa and take the people in it prisoner. Rangi Afia in February 1864, um, people are deliberately tossed to death inside their whare and inside their huts. And the attack on, on Rangi Afia was a source of particular pain and bitterness because that was supposed to be a place of refuge for women, children and, and elderly men. And the men, the fighting men, were at Patarangi waiting for a, a British attack that never came. The British kind of crept around Patarangi, which was a formidable defensive line, and attacked Rangiafia instead. Which Rangiafia wasn't a pa; it was it wasn't a fortified settlement. It was just an open village. It didn't really have defences of its own. And so that attack on the settlement, as I say, was the source of enormous pain. Then at Arako, um, at the end of March 1864, um, what happens is the people. In the, uh, in the PA, they run out of food and water and ammunition and they debate for several days what to do. And eventually they decide that they have, they have to try and leave that PA to, to, to flee. And they make their way out of the PA, um, initially um, in a group, in a circle, coming through the mist um, with their most important rangatira and, and women and children in the centre to protect them. And as they get closer to the British lines, they make a run for it. And then they're literally running for their lives on foot. And the British hunt them down on cavalry. And um, there, are doc there are multiple documented cases of atrocities committed, um, female prisoners being bayoneted to death in cold blood, um, and so on. So there's this myth-making around Arako, especially, you know, a lot of people would, would know it as Rewi's last stand, it's seen as a chivalrous and noble conflict. But actually, it was, there was nothing chivalrous and noble about this. It was bloody and brutal and awful. And the Waikato War isn't the end of fighting either. You've got more wars at Taranaki and the Bar Plenty on the east coast than elsewhere. 
the late 1860s, you get two remarkable um, Māori leaders who emerge, um, Te Takawaru in Taranaki and Tukoti um, at Gisborne on the East Coast. And Tukoti had been sent to the Chatham Islands along with about 300 other Māori, including women and children, um, and held there as prisoners without trial. They'd never been uh, tried or arrested for anything. Um, they're held there basically while the Crown is attempting to confiscate their lands back on the mainland. July 1868, they escape under Tukoti's leadership and sail back to New Zealand. Um, and on, at the very same time, on the other side of the island, Tukawari starts up this campaign against land confiscations in Taranaki. So late 1868, settlers have this kind of existential crisis. Um, the British troops are departing the country. They, they refuse to take any further part in the wars. And there's a, a real sense of being abandoned by the mother country. Um, and the Crown responds at times with, with acts of um, great cruelty. Um, at Natapa near Gisborne in January 1869, up to 128 Māori are lined up against the side of a cliff, stripped naked and shot, murdered, killed. Eventually, um, Te Takawari's force in Taranaki, after a remarkable series of victories, they, they disperse, they go home, and um, that, that threat is over. Tukuti continues to be pursued through Te Uruwera and elsewhere until 1872. The last shots of the wars are fired there uh, in November 18... Uh, last shots are fired there in 1872. You get the, the invasion of the settlement of Parihaka in November 1881, of course, but it's not really war if only, if only one side has guns and are prepared to fight. The, the armed constabulary who invade Parihaka are greeted by skipping, singing and dancing children. These are, these are some of the children of Parihaka who greeted the armed constabulary when they invaded the settlement. So, how did the wars shape New Zealand? As I said before, I, I think these were defining conflicts in our history, far more so than World War I and World War II. At one point, there were more British troops in New Zealand than almost anywhere else in the British Empire outside India. So these were wars of global significance as well, not just locally. They were also the first overseas wars that Australian troops fought in. Of course, they were fighting their own frontier wars against Aboriginal communities in Australia. But Australian troops came and fought in Waikato in 1863. The wars um, also marked the point at which the North Island and Auckland um, Start, start to dominate over the South Island. Before the 1860s, there were more people in the South Island than there were in the North, and, and that, that changes dramatically um, by, by the late 19th century. And the wars are also critical in terms of these two competing visions of what kind of relationship would we have in this country? How would Māori and Pākehā live together? So it's really the Crown's vision that, that prevails. Um, and that has almost immediate consequences so the Waikato War ends in 1864. By 1865, you've got the Native Land Court established. And that's been described as an engine of destruction for Māori society. Because what it does is says that there is no longer such a thing as tribal ownership of lands. If there are 500 people in that tribe, they'll each be entitled to sell one 500th of that land without consulting anybody else. They'll have a legal right to do that. So that's a deliberate attack on tribal leadership, and that is remarkably effective, effective at ensuring that much of the North Island passes into Pākehā hands as well. So that's 1865. Two years later, you get the native school system set up. So, and that, that's based on an explicitly assimilationist agenda. The aim is to turn Māori into brown Pākehā. So one strips Māori of their land, the other of their language. And we still live with the consequences of that today. These are consequences that flow directly out of the New Zealand wars. You also get land confiscations, of course, over three million acres, applied indiscriminately. A lot of Māori who fought for the Crown find their own lands confiscated. And um, so entirely indiscriminate. Casualty rates. I wrote in my Waikato War book, I calculated that these were higher than World War I in all likelihood. For the new book, I decided to look at another district, and here the results were even more alarming. In the um, Gisborne district, Turanga district, I, I, cal I calculated conservatively that about 20% of the population, Māori population of that district, died in the space of four years. One in five. Um, 
compare that with World War I, when the death rate was 1.7% of the total population. So in the Gisborne district, it's more than 10 times higher than that. Um, and that's, you know, that's just one example. You can see that across many different communities. So why don't we remember this history more than we do? I think one of the things is that the history of wars fought here makes some people feel uncomfortable. It's seen as a source of division. Um, and we compare that with Anzac Day when people flock to commemorations to remember um, troops who served in foreign wars. And that's seen as a, a source of patriotic pride. And I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't acknowledge Anzac Day, that that's an important thing as well to acknowledge. But what I'd say is we should be big enough as a nation to remember the wars fought here as well. They're also part of our story, they're part of our history. And a mature nation needs, needs to take ownership of its history, warts and all. You know, we can't just, we can't just say, well, we'd like to remember this, but sorry, we don't want to acknowledge that stuff. And that's not about assigning blame, it is just about taking ownership and growing up as a nation. And I suggest that understanding mutual respect and dialogue, actually talking about this history, taking ownership of, the, of this history, will actually bring us together rather than tear us apart. I think it's the basis for genuine reconciliation, which is grounded in dialogue. That doesn't require feelings of guilt or shame, just honesty and a willingness to confront these difficult topics. And actually, young people have been leading this. They're the, they're the ones who are leading this campaign. So these are students from Otrahonga College in 2014. They visited Arako and Rangiafia, 30 minutes from the school they lived in. And they were shocked to hear about what had happened at these places. And like me, they, they, they said to themselves, they went back to school after their site visit, and they said, why aren't we learning about this at school? And then they said, what can we do about this? So they organised a petition. More than 12,000 people signed it. So the pe petition called for a National Day of Commemoration for all of the victims of New Zealand wars. 2016, the government announced that would have one, but it wouldn't be a public holiday. But one of the things is, this, there was a second part of their petition that a lot of people um, don't know about, and that called for this history to be taught in all schools. So young people themselves saying, please, can we learn this history? We want to know the history of our country. That's an example of young people leading the way. And we can see multiple reasons why we need to know this history, we need to understand it. Ihu happening right now. You can't make sense of that without understanding the history of that site. The history is crucial, crucial context to that. So, if we're going to take ownership of this history, what would that mean in practical terms? First thing, look after the actual sites, the battle sites, the past sites, um, because they connect us to this history. And, and as I said earlier, often the only way that we find these is they have roads through the middle of them. That's how we mark the, the, these wahitapu, these sacred sites. So, you know, and once you lose those sites, they're gone forever. And, and we've lost so many of them, so let's protect the remnants of those sites. Because we know from the students at Otrahonga College, the power of visiting those sites, it's incredibly powerful to go to those places and stand in them and imagine the history there. Secondly, um, teach the history, really. I mean, why aren't, we, why aren't we learning this history at schools? To me, it's just incredible that that, that doesn't happen. I was talking about this um, at a conference last year in Hamilton. And I talked about my schooling experience and my history teacher refusing to, to, to teach this. Somebody came up to me at the end and he said, do you remember me? And he said, I'm your old history teacher. And um, that, was that was slightly uncomfortable. It was a good thing I said that he was a really good history teacher, but... Um, and he said to me, you know, you're quite right, I did refuse to teach you this history. I said it was boring. Thing is, he was a victim of this very same education system, that very same notion that New Zealand history was boring. So he hadn't been exposed to it himself. But he told me what happened is years later, he moved to an area where most of the kids at school were Māori. And he thought, it's just crazy to be teaching Tudor and Stuart history to a room full of Māori. So he, he took time out to learn some New Zealand history. And he, like me, he had that kind of experience where he was like, wow, this is incredible. Why didn't I know this before? And now he's really passionate about it. So that, that was really great to hear that. So protect the sites, teach the history, but also make resources available for adults. Because so many of us didn't learn this history. We need to break the intergenerational cycle of ignorance around our history. We need to take ownership of it. 
And I don't think these are things that are unreasonable to ask. I think they're just things that any, any country that wanted to be grown up and mature about itself would do. And, it, you know, this, this is who we are, and we need to take ownership of our history. So I'll finish here and leave some time for questions. Thank you. Rachel's just coming over with a question. Can you comment on the distinction between the, uh, in the English version of that, between Article 1 and Article 2, which talks about sovereignty in Article 1 mm. and guaranteeing Māori their lands, estates, forests and fisheries in Article 2, and how they reconciled that. Yeah, well, so um, Article 1 of the English translation, um, the Crown assumes full sovereignty over New Zealand. In the Tereo Māori version, the Crown is um, ceded kawanatanga, which means governance, which is a lesser thing than sovereignty. Um, and in Article 2, in the Te Reo Māori text, Māori are promised to tēnā ranga tēnā tanga um, over their lands, their tāunga, um, over their treasures, and so on. Uh, in the English, that, that's full chiefly authority. But basically what it means is Māori are promised that you'll continue to be in, in, in charge of your own affairs. And so there was this expectation um, that Māori would continue to have the right to manage their own internal affairs after 1840. And that there would be co-governance arrangement in terms of matters that affected both peoples. So, you know, when Parliament was set up, Māori expected to be part of that. They didn't expect to be excluded from that. Um, and Māori had overwhelmingly signed the Te Reo Māori version of Te Tiriti as well. Um, and so that, that, that's really the definitive version, that Te Reo version. Um, and for so long, Pākehā just pulled out the English version and said, here, look at this, it's all here, you ceded sovereignty. Well, Māori didn't sign that. They signed a Tereo version that ceded something far lesser than that to the Crown. So this is something that, um, you know, historians, I think it was Ruth Ross in the early 1970s, started writing really about that, that big disjunction between those two texts, Michael King as well, and many others over the years. Um, and that's something that the Waitangi Tribunal also commented on in its... Um, Northland report that came out four or five years ago now, I think, when they said that, that Ngāpui hadn't ceded the sovereignty to the Crown. Kia ora, thanks so much, Vincent. I was wondering if you could make sense of something that has troubled me for quite a while. Back in 2016, when the students from Otrahonga presented their petition, they had a meeting in Wellington in the library to present the second part talking about history. And there the government was confronted about its nationhood project, which is the first time it had talked about it publicly. It was a project in which, under the previous government, national chief executives had got together in a think tank and decided what would unite the nation would be a focus on Anzac and the wars. But we wouldn't talk about it, we would just do it. And so they rolled out a series of um, promos and websites and every community got the little white crosses. The kids said, why can't we have our history and why won't you put the resources in the same way? And two troubling responses which I haven't understood. One was, oh, you're, this is very political. And the other was, well, if you're going to do that, you'd have to do local history for local. So I wondered how you make sense of that and what you think about those two things. Yeah, well, when I do school visits, one of the questions that young people ask me all the time is, why are adults so opposed to this? And I don't really know the answer to that because it doesn't make any sense to me. But there, is, there are two kind of... Um, sort of responses to this, and the, the, they're quite contradictory. On the one hand, you've got this idea that New Zealand history is boring, you know, which is you know, what I was told. On the other hand, it's seen as too hot to handle. 
It's too controversial. Um, and for, for schools, if they have a choice, um, people who have looked at this sort of suggest that they will, they will shy away for, from something contentious because essentially they're in competition with the school up the road. They don't want to lose students. And um, so, I mean, there's a real issue there, but also in terms of um, the, I mean, the attitude of the Ministry of Education to this. They say the current system would allow for this to happen. That's fine, but we know that large numbers of students aren't learning anything about this history at all. So simply, simply saying that it's possible, that's not good enough. It should be more than possible. It should be something that students are learning. And, you know, there are lots of um, really wonderful, passionate, committed history teachers out there who are doing great stuff around this, but what if you're not at one of those schools? I mean, it's, it's a lottery system where you end up, whether, whether um, your children will learn about this history at all at school. Complete lottery. How is that a good system? I don't know. I thought a question. As you can tell from my accent, I'm from England, so um, I did learn about the Tudors and the Stuarts. Um, I'd like to know the lack of education uh, in New Zealand at the moment about these New Zealand wars. Is that across the board? Is it with all different groups in New Zealand? Or is it predominantly within the Pākehā? Do, do Māori actually spread the word to their people and their young people in particular? Um, well, Māori communities would remember this history in a lot of different ways and it's, you know, it's spoken on Marae. It's, it's, it's seen in Marae in all sorts of ways. It's also, um, you know, it's carried in Waiata. It's even, um, as I said in the earlier session, it's also remembered in, in the names that, that children are given, you know, like Muru and Raupatu and so on. But, um, and, and in, but in terms of the, I mean, the education system, one of the things about the current system um, is that the Ministry of Education has no idea how many students are learning this history because no statistics are kept. It, it's almost like we'd prefer not to know the answer to that because it would be bad. Um, there's a PhD student um, doing something at the moment um, and he's trying to get some answers on that. What we know is that um, there's no requirement to teach any New Zealand history in any school, um, which is remarkable. At NCA level, only about 20% of students do it at year 11. So 80% um, of students, at a minimum, aren't getting any exposure. Even if that other 20% who are doing history if they all did New Zealand history, that would still leave 80% who aren't getting any. We know that the 20% aren't all doing New Zealand history. A lot are still doing Tudors and Stuart history and so on as well. So to me, an obvious solution here is, at the very least, and this, this is quite a modest proposal, is teaching at years 9 and 10, um, you know, when all, so all students would be exposed to it. Um, and so I'm not suggesting that it should be a compulsory NCA topic or anything like that. Um, but we should have at least an introduction to this topic so that all students leave school knowing something about it. And also, you know, you could, you could introduce it earlier as well. I know some primary schools are also attempting to, to teach students around this history as well. I think there's a question up here. In the 1990s, I was involved in a group called Project Waitangi Pākehā Debate the Treaty. Um, and it was, uh, the focus was around 1990, which was the 150th anniversary of the signing of the treaty. And because we'd realised that Māori had always debated the treaty, but the other party to that had not debated it. And what we found a lot was, was telling Pākehā New Zealanders about the history of, the true history of New Zealand. And we actually found that a lot of the reaction was that Pākehā New Zealanders were angry that we hadn't been told the truth. Because I think there's a sort of collective um, 
feeling of fairness about this country because many of us came to this country because we weren't treated fairly from where we came from and therefore were quite horrified that we hadn't treated the people who were here fairly. So I think there's, there's, there's a genuine sense of goodwill if people know the facts yeah. and we just basically put the facts in front of people. Yeah. Um, and so I just wonder why the, there is this resistance to actually teaching the truth about our history. Yeah, well, as I said, um, I don't really, I don't fully understand it myself because to me it is common sense, and um, you know, it's not knowing the history of the country that you grow up and you live in. That's that's not a healthy thing for anybody. We need to know who we are as a nation, where we've come from, um, in order to work out where we're going. So, um, and I, I think this is something where I think this will happen. I think it's I think it's something that with a certain amount of momentum is built up now around this, and I think it will be hard to escape. So that I hope that there is, um, you know, just this week the New, the New Zealand History Teachers Association um, submitted their petition to Parliament, and I, I hope that there's, you know, a meaningful response to that, and and we do get change. I, just a comment before I go into the question. I was brought up in Scotland, and I was. I got really furious as a kid that we got English, English history slung at us and we never got any Scottish history at all apart from the Act of Union, 1707. Yep. <laughs> um, and was in geography, we got Scottish geography, um, but I never had the chance to learn Gaelic and I felt as a kid that I was, I was missing out on an important part of my heritage. Mm. Um, but my, my question's around um, the focus on... Um, <coughs> around Anzac on Gallipoli was uh, with the, uh, the, the world wars, um, there, was, there were more deaths in the Somme than in Gallipoli. And the dis there's a huge distortion in the history that people are, t that, that people are taught here, as well as omitting the, uh, the Maori contribution you know, mm. to, um, to um, the more recent wars. Um, and you know, there's, there's insufficient focus on the, on the um, history prior to that. And then too much on this one particular battle, which is a complete distortion of all that went on. Yeah, I, no, I agree that there, there is an um, obsession with Gallipoli at the expense of many other topics. And of course, I mean, Gallipoli is part of our story, but there has been this myth-making around it. You know, the, the idea that New Zealand was, New Zealand identity was fought at Gallipoli. Um, and you know, I'd suggest that the New Zealand wars were far more um, foundational in terms of thinking around those things that than Gallipoli or World War One was. I think we had a question up there. Yeah, one last question. Kira Vincent, thank you. I'd like to mention a few things rather than ask a question, if I may. Um, I grew up with a great uncle who was the first New Zealand-born Marist Maori missioner. From 1917 on, he um, was at Jerusalem and roundabout, and he got in trouble with his bishop because I read it in the Marist archives for being too Maori and for taking his Maori housekeeper with him, and for teaching Maori, which he did. And he, alongside Nata, he actually started making sure that Maori learnt their language. So I learned that from a very early age. So when I was teaching in the 1970s, I have to give kudos to Paul O'Connor at Aoraki. We were teaching together, he was the HOD. We taught about the Maori Wars. We taught about what was happening to our students. And the, t the parents didn't actually protest, which was really good. And then in 1981, I think it was, um, Professor Anne Parsonson taught the first Māori studies at Canterbury University. And in 1983, at college in, again, Canterbury, there was a six-weeks Māori immersion course for all primary training teachers, but not for secondary teachers. And then with the national government, that all went by the board. So I don't think there's a question here. There's sort of a statement and a few comments that some of us have been struggling for years to right the wrongs and to ensure that history is, is taught and is researched from 
primary sources insofar as we can. So I know that I had, you know, probably hundreds of students over the years who definitely went away with a different perception. I'm sure that every other person that I knew also taught that. But you're right, it wasn't part of the curriculum per se. There weren't a great many resources and it depended on goodwill and actually, you know, having an HOD who said, yes, fine, let's teach that. Thank you. Thank you. Yep. Actually, um, when I did enrol in Digital History 101, Anne Parsonson was my lecturer. And years later, she got me that three-month contract in Wellington, so I owe a lot to her. And that's all we've got time for, everybody. Vincent's going to be out in the foyer signing books, so if you've got any other statements you'd like to share with him or any questions you'd like to ask him, I'm sure he'd be happy to answer. Um, could you please just join me in giving Vincent a very warm thank you. Also, just say that there's uh, Simon Winchester is going to be here in half an hour in conversation with Kim Hill. And if you haven't bought a ticket yet, there are a few tickets left. Um, and we hope to see you there. And thank you so much for coming today. It's been great.